I'm so glad you tuned in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Elise Klein about livable income guarantee. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Beth. Thanks for having me. Can you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Uh, oh, where do you start? <laughs> but I guess um, I'm at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. And I've been um, thinking about the ideas around economic security for quite a while. I've um, come and, and most of my studies have been in international development and development studies. So thinking about how most of the world's population um, is uh, has insecure um, economic, well, they don't have economic security, most of the world's population. Um, and it's interesting coming back to Australia and looking at, you know, this obsession around um, uh, employment um, and and this, this concern around how um, economic security is increasing here. Um, and, uh, and, and thinking about, you know, what, in a global context, how that sort of speaks to sort of broader um, issues in global capitalism that have been felt by the world's majority for a long time. Yeah, you're right. I mean, people are really feeling it in this country, but I suppose it really gives us an insight into people in other countries and what they have to deal with all the time, doesn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it speaks to this kind of idea of what a developed society is. And, and I think, you know, when you look at um, global development, uh, take a step back and look at global development, you know, it's been at a sort of a prescription by global North economies and global North governments about how the global South must develop. Um, and of course, their economies are linked to um, global North economies and, you know, have historically been taken advantage of all the way since colonization so um you know this kind of idea that it's ca the these issues that have been felt globally for a long time um you know catching up uh in australia um is i think an interesting reflection but i mean it doesn't make it any easier or justify that people here are living in economic security insecurity that's a good point so what was it that inspired you to study a livable income guarantee? Well, I guess my sort of um, interest has been more with this sort of these ideas around a universal basic income. So this idea that um, people have an economic floor. So, um, you know, ongoing um, stable payments um, made to people uh, just for being alive, just for being human. Um, these ideas are sort of, you know, philosophically linked to um, people's right for economic security, but also um, beyond that, a rightful share that, you know, we all engage in society, we all create value in the economy, um, and therefore, so, um, you know, wealth should be distributed and uh, in the form of a, a basic income is often the the tool in which, which redistribution can happen. So I'm, I'm interested at, from that perspective. Um, the livable income guarantee is a little bit different to a basic, a universal basic income. It would be just paid to uh, people um, who uh, didn't have an adequate income. 
the other thing about the livable income guarantee that um, myself and colleagues that are working on it have been thinking about is um, the idea of a participation requirement. So that would make uh, the income, the, the payment conditional on people um, undertaking some form of participation or some, some uh, activity that creates social good. So we're trying to define that really broadly um, to include all sorts of work that people undertake that are currently not being paid for in the formal economy. So, I mean, care work's major, a major one, but art, like the work that's undertaken by artists um, that is often not paid, um, students, the work that are done by students, by activists, um, but also uh, people who are looking after country, that are looking after um, um, the sort of the ecology. There's all sorts of ways in which people um, do work, but it's not recognised in the economy. So the idea of the livable income guarantee would be that you would have to submit some kind of participation um, um, uh, um, uh, activity. Um, and we're, we're really big on wanting that to be defined as broadly as possible, but also different from the current income um, welfare system where people have to, you sort of, you're distrusted until you show your, what, that you've done your mutual obligation. This would be like the way in which the tax system operates, where they operate on trust. So you submit a tax return and you're trusted with that. Um, and then you may be audited later. We'd want the livable income guarantee to operate like that. So you're not, it's not that you're distrusted, that, you, that people are trusted, you know, that you are you put in your um, your participation activity and it's taken on that you, that it's trusted um, so people aren't sanctioned and things like that that we see which is awful today I look I don't see the livable income guarantee as a the end goal I see a universal basic income as an end goal but I see the livable income guarantee as a step um, forward to what we have now because basically it would be an increase in rate, it would be about broadening the ideas around work um, and it would take away of course all the punitive conditionality that we see currently um, which then and and you know it sort of speaks to the current moment where unfortunately sort of the politics is that people you know, see that mutual obligation has a role, um, and uh, and that is a shame. And, but you know, trying to offer a sort of a policy that could be workable in the in the current moment, um, in the hope that it could move into something more like a universal basic income later on, I think would be would would could be possible. So, does a livable income guarantee exist in other countries? Um, yes and no. I mean, there's all sorts of different um, basic income programs being trialled and running. I mean, one interesting thing that I don't think is known um, widely or acknowledged widely in, in Australia is we had um, from 1977 um, a program called the Community Development Employment Projects. So this was offered mainly to people living remotely, which was mainly First Nations people. And it was a block 
amount of money that was given to Aboriginal controlled organisations. So this is back in ATSIC days before um, the government um, demolished ATSIC. Um, and so community control organisations were given a lump sum of money, which included money that paid, um, which was sort of, is their sort of livable income guarantee, plus a like a community block grant. So basically people were paid um, through their community organisations um, an income guarantee for undertaking um, a broad range of work. And so work was defined by the community organisation. So it could um, include all sorts of things, which mainly, and a lot of it included a lot of care of country, a lot of community development work. Um, and so people undertook these these jobs, this, this work, and were paid for it at a minimum wage. Um, and then there was also some other money available so that that you know, machinery could be bought or materials could be bought to support these community development activities. So, in a way, we sort of see the income guarantee operating a bit like that. That, um, that taking a very broad approach to work. Um, and I mean, CDEP was really successful. I mean, of course, it was dismantled since 2004 um, by both Liberal and Labor governments. Um, and because of that, unemployment in remote um, um, communities has has increased dramatically, poverty increased dramatically. So, um, you know, I, I think that goes to show this kind of approach can can help and um, and and can support people in having having broader aspirations than just you know getting into a job uh, what the government calls a real job um, you know redefining what we mean by work to really support everybody that's doing all sorts of important um, productive things for society um, and really supporting yeah work in in its broader sense. At the moment, it's July 2020, and some people have been receiving government assistance because of the coronavirus. Could you explain about this? Yeah, I mean, I, this this sort of speaks to um, you know people um, losing employment, losing jobs um, because of the restrictions that governments enforced um, to try and deal with COVID. So a whole lot of people are losing their jobs. Um, and so just before, um, well, there was an announcement yesterday, but it was set at $550 supplement on top of payments people were getting before. Um, that's now being, so that'll run out in September. And then I think people are getting about a $300 um, supplement, sorry, $200 supplement, $250 supplement on top of that. Um, I mean, it's an acknowledgement that before um, corona hit, um, payments, and particularly New Start, youth allowance and others were so low. People, I mean, it was, you know, putting people into poverty. Um, you know, the, the, the um, welfare system was set up to stop people falling into poverty, but these amounts were not um, stopping people from falling into poverty. If you lived on those amounts, you, you often found yourself in poverty. Um, and so there's been a massive push for a long time to increase those rates. So, so um, this is the government realising that that, that um, amount is not enough. And, um, but also, I mean, I think it's really um, also not um, something to, worth pointing out is that 
um, it's a lot of people who, you know, people before COVID that were getting New Start Youth Allowance have been demonised, have been degraded um, by, you know, mainstream media, politicians have used um, people taking state support um, as a political football and have, you know, said all sorts of awful things, untrue things about people who are unemployed. Um, now, you know, there's, you know, the good working person who's finding themselves in a similar position, I, that argument, that sort of nasty, um, uh, you know, framing of people on welfare is starting to eat at their votes, voters. So they can't really do that. They can't use that um, narrative. Um, so I think... Um, we're seeing a willingness by the government to um, increase the rate, but they won't they won't commit to keeping the rate high um, when COVID is over. And that's a concern. Um, and so we really need to keep pushing for a sustained increase in these payments. Um, but also not just the increase in the rate, but also a suspension, a permanent um, um, erasure of um, this whole idea of mutual obligation, the kinds of conditionalities and the punitive ways in which government has treated people um, taking state support has been horrific. I mean, the conditions that are placed on it for what people have to do to get money, like um, work for the doll, also you have parents next, which is just rubbish. Um, but then also conditions on what people can do with their money, like the cashless debit card, which again is totally rubbish. So some of these... Um, mutual obligation programs were peeled back um, during well, during COVID, but they're about to restart, which is concerning because, I mean, clearly the employment market is not, the job market is not, um, has not recovered. So why people would be forced to jump through hoops is beyond me. Cashless debit card was never suspended. That's continued the whole way through. And that's, you know, clearly concerning. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. So, how would a livable income guarantee work? Well, like I was saying, that um, that pe people, um, if you didn't have an adequate income, um, you would be paid. Um, we're sort of saying it's about the amount of the pension, um, but that's sort of we're sort of looking at that at the moment. Um, so you'd be paid that. And um, you'd have to uh, submit a statement to, um, to that, that talked about what act, what community activity you were doing um, to support. Uh, yeah, th that that um, was your sort of participation aspect of it. Um, we see that it probably cost about thirty billion a year, um, which is could be covered by the uh, tax cuts that the coalition is about to pay some of the highest earners. Uh, in the country, so just by foregoing that, um, you could cover this. You could also easily pay for it through just, a, I mean, a wealth tax on on the highest earners. Um, that money could easily cover um, uh, people uh, that were getting a payment like this. So, which you know, I mean, there's there's genuine reasons why that. I mean, redistribution um, is is a very important. Thing, and particularly when we have such an extraordinary inequality, but also it's not about charity. This is not about giving to people because, you know, people are suffering or vulnerable. This is um, establishing people's right 
to have economic security and also acknowledging that everybody um, takes and, and uh, everybody t um, has a place in generating um, rich people's wealth. Um, not just through the labour that we do, but through the taxes that we pay that, you know, the, because we pay for the roads that they use, the healthcare, the education that they all, that they, um, that they benefit from. So, um, you know, this is, this is not, a, I don't think a radical proposal. It's that we all contribute. Therefore, at the very least, everyone should be guaranteed uh, a livable income. Definitely, and I, I suppose I was going to, actually going to ask you how would the government pay for this, but, but you've already answered that question. So um, now, do you think that the welfare system should be more like a tax system? I mean, they are they operate together, but often they're seen there, and they uh, they operate in unison. Um, but at the same time, they don't, because, like I was saying earlier, um, the welfare system is treated. Uh, people um, are treated like um, they're criminals, basically, that they're t treated with distrust and um, disdain, and you you have a burden of proof to prove yourself constantly um, with all the documentation. You know, you're not believed straight up. You have to prove yourself. The tax system is different, that you are believed and then you're audited um, later on. Um, but it, the initial idea is that you believe. So that's why with this participation aspect, we'd be keen to look for that though so not um, having a sort of a sector that's built upon distrust where people have to turn up to work like activities and um, uh, uh, you know and tick the box and everybody's monitored and there's mass surveillance it would just be simply people would undertake their activities as they um, as they do and um, and they would get their livable income guarantee and they'd submit a statement um, and, and it would be received with trust um, like like the tax system. I don't know if you know about this, but just recently I was reading about how if people did have that uh, base, their basic needs were actually met, that it would be more of an incentive for them to actually go out and look for employment or perhaps even, even as you were saying about doing more good within the community. Well, that's right. I mean, and that, you know, there was an, um, a basic income trial in Ontario. One of the main findings was that is that, um, that most people did get back into work. The people, the two groups that didn't were students and mums. Um, and mums because they use the payment to stay with their kids more um, and um, young people because they wanted to, to use the money to support them through study like which is not they're not you know um, you know terrible things at all of course so um, yeah I mean this kind of idea of incentive but I mean the other thing is is that the reality is um, we have now we it was a the labor market was a problem before COVID hit there was mass there was a, you know growing um, economic insecurity um, growing um, underemployment as well as unemployment um, now that's that's really um, has really increased and you know all people are losing their jobs and it's a what a horrible horrible thing um, to happen to people and so. Um, you know, because of that, this kind of idea that the welfare state needs to push 
people to find work and incentivize people. I mean, it's just rubbish because we know that there's just not enough jobs for everyone. There wasn't not enough jobs for everyone before COVID. Um, but on top of that, people are productive all the time um, and doing activities that um, that support the economy that are unpaid. I mean, the kind of work that particularly women do as as parents, women and mothers, um, but also um, you know, and some men. The kind of work, the the economic um, uh, value that that the the formal economy profits from from all the unpaid care work people do is really astonishing um you know i think pwc did a did a study and they reckon it was about 20 percent of the economy um it's the largest industry in australia if you compare it to all the other paid formal industries like um the um, uh, mining or fi financial sector etc etc so you know i mean it's so valuable but yet it's often passed off as oh, just something you know wishy-washy not important and and often because it's it's work that women do um that it's probably not seen as important so hugely productive hugely important uh and so you know these these kinds of ideas about providing economic security through a livable income guarantee or a basic income um you know is about providing people economic security and also acknowledging people are already productive um if you think about the work that artists do um and the kinds of social good that their work brings to us all um, and it's often undervalued underappreciated and you know has for a long time been sort of in the government's firing line for you know all the cuts there the budget cuts that they've made to the sector um, you know this work is so important and and you know providing people economic security it doesn't of course cover the complete value of this work but at least gives people you know economic security um and and their head above water um so they're not falling into destitution as well as not making people feel like they're criminals because they're they're doing this work that's that's a really good point uh, is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered no, I, I think that that probably I probably talked a, what, a bit, so <laughs> that's probably enough. All right. Uh, do you have any future study plans within this field? Yeah, I mean, I'm always looking at yeah this this role of um, work more broadly. So um, you know, there's there's studies that we're doing with women that have been put on parents next um, and looking at all of the productive things that they, they do, because of course the government treats them like they're not doing anything, that they're not working. But, you know, I mean, they're raising kids, they're doing all sorts of volunteering work, um, studying, um, you know, creating women's groups. Like there's all sorts of amazing things that, that women are doing, um, but they're often stigmatised and, and dehumanised. Um, and so, you know, trying to sort of write and to think through with them about and documenting all the the, the work that they do um, and trying to retell the story differently um, is, is one area. I mean, I'd always love to see um, a full rollout of a basic income. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd hope that any politician listening might might um, work work on that. That'd, that'd be great. Yes, it would be. And especially when you think about when you have a child, well, probably up to about the age of 
13 or 14. I mean, you're very limited in what type of work you can do, aren't you? Absolutely. And I mean, this is, this is the burden that's put on mainly women because of social norms that regulate care work to women. It doesn't have to be women that do it, but it often is. And, you know, I mean, childcare is expensive. So a lot of people, you know, have this very real trade-off. Like, do you pay, do you take a job and, um, and then have to use a lot of that to pay for childcare? Um, also questions around flexibility, like child, um, looking after children, it's got to fit around school, it's got to fit around doctor's appointments. You need a job that's going to be flexible enough to allow you to do that. Often those jobs, are casualized jobs often they're or they're part-time jobs so they're um, paid and often they're paid less um, and they're precarious work so you know I mean women in these positions um, you know it's tough it's really it's really tough and you know in the patriarchal economy that we have um, just does not give the adequate support um, to, to, to women and people in in this in this situation no, it's very um, a worthwhile study. So thank you very much for coming onto the program today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Elise Klein about livable income guarantee. And do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.